Hi, and welcome everyone to today's episode. Today we have another amazing author who has decided to join us in the hot seat, uh, Stephen Leva. Is that how you pronounce it? Leva. Leva. Uh, Leva. Think, think of Princess Leia with a V. Awesome. There we go. <laughs> uh, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, I'm super excited to, to uh, find out a bit about your book, what's going on with it, and a little bit more about you as well. Um, to start off, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what your book is about. Well, uh, the name is Stephen Paul Leva. I always use, always use all the names uh, because uh, I, I did not grow up in a rich family. And my parents couldn't give me much. So as a teenager, I decided whatever they gave me, I'm going to use. So from uh, high school, uh, on all my tests and everything, I always put the full name. Rather pretentious thing to do in high school, but there you are. Um, uh, I grew up here in Southern California, born in Pasadena, which figures into my new novel, actually. And I uh, grew up in a little town called Azusa, whose motto is everything from A to Z in the USA. Uh, it was not accurate. <laughs> it was a, a kind of a sleepy uh, suburb, uh, about 30 miles out from Los Angeles. But I live in LA now, uh, very much a city boy. Uh, and uh, I write novels, been working on novels. Well, I've been writing all my life, but I got waylaid for about 20 some years and wound up in the film industry as a producer, a promoter, a screenwriter. Um, but eventually I was able to get back to uh, full-time writing novels because prose is what I like more than anything. I love movies, but my art, uh, I've discovered, is the writing of uh, prose in fiction and some essays, but mainly fiction. Sweet. I will have to pick your brain eventually on, on the, the movie industry. I'm learning how to do screenwriting, so uh, or adaptations from books to screen screens. Um, so uh, what drew you to writing in the genres that you write in? Well, you know what? It's always um, kind of the idea. First of all, it's going to be your experience growing up and what you read. Uh, there's not too many writers who were not big readers as, as kids. Um, and in our generation, uh, and I'm in the first generation that had television in the home, I was born in 1949 uh, in May, and my parents got a TV for Christmas. I've always said because my father wanted to hear the pitter-patter of uh, horse hoofs as opposed to the pitter-patter of mine. No, my dad was a nice guy. Um, so I grew up with television. So you're very inspired. And on television, there's all kinds of genres, aren't there? Yeah. Um, uh, as a little kid uh, in the 50s here in America, as you know, Westerns were a big deal, but I've never been uh, inspired to write Westerns because later Star Trek, Twilight Zone, shows like that came on and I was enamored by that and then uh, started getting into reading, of course, and I would read, you know, uh, what, what we now call YA books. They were in the children's library of uh, Tom Swift and Tom Corbett and things like that. But I also like to read on um, historical characters like Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, who was a big deal when yeah. I was a kid. Um, and then I was very fortunate in sophomore year in high school to get involved in the drama department. And it, it altered my life. And I, I often said it saved it uh, because it introduced not only the whole idea of acting and drama and performance, but reading a lot of plays, I got to understand the power of the written word um, in both uh, theatrical and, uh, of course, in prose and novels. Uh, and I, after three years in the drama department and very uh, uh, active in the, what, uh, our, our local uh, group there at Azusa High School was the Aztec Players, I, I came out not necessarily wanting to be an actor, although I did a lot of acting in these plays, but I wanted to be the writer because I became enamored with the idea of authorship being the authority, creating the world and the characters became more important to me than uh, interpreting it as, as an actor. Yeah. And um, that's, that's what started me off. And uh, I started off writing short stories, many of which were basically rip-offs, uh, Twilight Zone-like stories. But yeah. Twilight Zone has remained an inspiration to me ever since, actually, in various things, I think. But I also got into literature because when you study drama at that time, you're going to study Arthur Miller and you're going to study Tennessee Williams. And uh, eventually you get to studying Shakespeare, which I uh, love Shakespeare. 
and that led you into into prose. And then I started reading serious novels as well as genre novels, mysteries. I, great lover of mysteries. And so because of all that, I write in the genres that I've been inspired by, including the mainstream love stories or what have you. Um, and it just depends on what the story is and what you're trying to achieve and what you need to surround it with. If you need to surround it with monsters and creatures, you write something with monsters and creatures. If it needs to have a science fictional what if quality to it, you do that. If it's a more realistic thing about more or less realistic people, then that's what you pick to do. So I'm an eclectic reader. I'm an eclectic author and uh, kind of comfortable doing that. So you you didn't uh, when you decided you were going to start writing again you didn't you know necessarily focus on being very specific with your genres you you thought more of the whatever is going to inspire me at this moment is what I'm going to write. Yeah, I probably um, I like all young people. I wrote a little poetry in high school and. And later, I wrote short stories. My short stories were always usually, like I say, sort of like Twilight Zone episodes. Um, but when I started writing my first novel, although it, it's sort of an alternate history book, but not in the normal way, it was a, it was a very serious novel um, called Right, R-I-G-H-T. Yeah. And I called it a portrait of a controversy. And I, I'm always inspired by an idea that I'm trying to get at. And the idea here was the people take political sides or sides on a controversy, not necessarily because they're right or they're wrong, but it really comes from who we are, our experiences, what we were inculcated with as a child, whether we grew up in a highly religious family or not, things like that. So uh, very suspicious of people's opinions, uh, of people thinking their opinions are always right. When yes. they don't, they don't. It, it comes from you. So you have you have to try to find. You have to realize you're be always being subjective. Very few people are being objective. Yes. So yes. that that was that. Now that that I may eventually look at that novel again and dredge it out and see if I want to eventually publish it. But um, I, I also love theater, so I wrote a play called Made on the Moon, and it was it started out as a polemic. Uh, for the for the space program because the space program had excited me as a young teenager and then in 73 they stopped it they stopped it cold we didn't go to the moon anymore so yeah. i was i was going to write a play in my in my young 20s that were going to promote um going to promote uh, the space program so it was made on the moon and it was about a, it was a very mysterious again almost twilight zone episode of a guy being interviewed by three people and it started out as a short story i was working at a place called the inner city cultural center at the time which was a big a multicultural uh, and multi-ethnic cultural center that grew out of the riots here in la back then the uh, uh there were riots in the in the early 70s if you uh, i don't know if you remember that the watts the watts riots and so money was put into this and it was a great vibrant place that had theater that had art that had dance that had everything and it had a um, an arts magazine where I started writing as a journalist. But being inspired there, I wrote first, uh, tried to write a one act. Um, I, think, I think it was a short story. Then I turned it into one act play. Later it became a, a two act play. Um, and uh, when, uh, and, and it, was the, it was the writing that told me that I was a writer, that finally gifted me with the sense and it was because I learned something when I we did a first stage reading of it. Yeah. Um, the audience seemed to love it, but they were very, very angry at me about one aspect. I created a character named Stanley Lewis in it, and I was young and I wanted to be in your face, right? Yeah. So I created a character who I I want I wanted the audience to hate this character. And what they were angry about is that at one point in the play, I made the character a mass murderer. And they were angry because they liked him <laughs> or they understood him. They had empathy for him. He became, he was universal. Yeah. And it like struck me like ice cubes into the face that what I, I had done something wonderful there without realizing I was going to do it. 
And that was to create something that was universal. So I made a change, didn't make him a mass murderer, but what that was trying to accomplish in the play was still there. And it turned out to be much better. Awesome. And, I, and I learned that's, that's, what, that's what writing is. You write about something in particular, but you try to reach for something universal that will communicate to as many people as you can get to. Yes, I, I would agree. Um, you don't want to, um, you, you don't want to be laser focused. You want to appeal to a broader audience because your broader audience, I find you, you get more interaction, you get, you know, you get more recognition, not, not in the sense of your, you know, the celebrity, but your characters become living, breathing entities to these, to, to your readers. And I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, that's, that's what you're reaching for. Certainly. Yes. Yeah. So awesome. Um, now, uh, how are you published? Did you go uh, indie? Did you go traditional? Um, uh, did you do a combination thereof? And why did you go the route that you did? Well, I started out um, indie, and then I had a novelization that I wrote, which was published by a traditional publisher, Thomas Nelson. And that came about because it was it was a, a independent family picture called The Twelve Dogs of Christmas, yep. which was which um, I had been asked by a friend. His daughter had actually published this children's book, a picture book that was uh, took the lyrics of the Twelve Days of Christmas and turned it into the Twelve Dogs of Christmas. Yeah. Now this this young girl Emma Craig and her fa her father Ken Craig and happened to have been one of the most uh, active um, uh, personal managers in Hollywood. He had managed Smothers Brothers, Kenny Rogers, uh, Lionel Richie, a whole lot of people, and very and it produced the famous Smothers Brothers show of the '60s. So Ken got that published and with pictures, and he got a recording of the song "The Twelve Dogs of Christmas" that went with the the whole thing, and he would hand it out at friends at parties. And one um, happened to be uh, uh, at the, in the animation department at Columbia studios yeah and um uh, or sony columbia at the time sony and said we we should make this into an animated thing so he calls me up and we had known each other for a number of years and he says and he knew i had i had worked in animation and and, and indeed before that it produced uh the animation for space jam if you remember that yeah with, the, with the, the very sweaty michael jackson and the very witty bugs bunny yeah and uh so he said can you uh come up with a story because the book is just you know rewritten lyrics right there's no story and it's the last thing I wanted to do because I was getting out of animation I was getting out of I wanted to concentrate on my own novels and I said uh well let me think about it Ken but I don't know but by the time I hung up the phone a plot idea occurred to me <laughs> so I, I call him back and I say well how about this and then I gave him that. he said that's great that's great work on that and then on Monday and that was a Friday. And on Monday, he calls me and says, so I've got a meeting at Sony. <laughs> it's like, well, so I quickly wrote a rather elaborate, what we call treatment. And when I wrote treatments, I, it would have a lot of dialogue. It was, it was really a full out thing. We go in there, I do a dog and pony show. I act out the whole thing. They said, it's the best pitch we ever heard. We're gonna buy it. And the next day, all the executives got fired. <laughs> Hollywood, right? Yep. A couple, couple years later, he he was, showed it to a friend who directed live action. He said, well, we could do this as a live action film, but he wanted to write the screenplay. I said, but fine by me, because I was busy doing other things. So it's, you know, based on a story by me. It was, uh, Ken released it very independently, but it did well. He made a deal with Target to release the DVD of it and all that stuff. You know, that's the kind of thing he did. Yeah. And a year later, um, Thomas Nelson, the, the publisher who had published Emma's original book, said, let's have a, a book based on the, 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 uh, the movie. Yeah. So Ken calls me up and said, can you novelize this? And I said, well, it's good you asked me because of writers, because this was a Writers Guild uh, deal. Writers Guild rules is you have to come to me anyway. So yeah, let me. So I'm one of the few guys that got to write a novelization for film by actually watching the damn film first. Most novelizations are written based on a screenplay yeah. and often it's not the shooting script. So there'll be differences. Yeah. So, and, and what made me happy is I wasn't that completely happy with what the director had done in the screenplay and 
in directing the movie. So I was able to correct certain things and, and uh, fill in gaps that I felt should be filled in. But that's the great thing about a novel, isn't it? Yeah. So that was a traditional. But since then, um, because it's very, very hard, especially with the, the way publishing has gone in the last several years, um, to, to get past the transom, you know, unless you find an agent, and it's very hard to find an agent. And I was of an age, and I'd had over 20 years experience in the motion picture industry, that I just wanted to get my books out there. Yeah. So luckily, yeah. I was introduced to some indie digital publishers, I call them indie di digital publishers, and who uses the technology of not only ebooks and Amazon and Amazon distribution, but also POD, uh, print on demand, where Am have Amazon does your paperbacks when you do it. So all that technology cr uh, uh, created an opportunity for authors. Yes. Um, because before, if you didn't get past that citadel into publishing, you're not going to get published unless you do what used to be called vanity publishing, where you pay somebody a lot of money to, to print your books. And yeah. then you've got a huge bunch of books in, sitting in your garage yeah. because there was no way for you to just distribute them. Well, distribution, getting it published was taken care of by this. Distribution, especially through Amazon, was taken care of. Yeah. But the problem is still marketing. But that's a problem if you're a mid-list author at Random House and they don't think you're going to be a bestseller, they're not going to do much to market your book anyway. So yeah, you might exactly. take it on your own. Yeah. So I've had yeah. um, three different indie publishers. But last year, a good friend and a damn fine writer named Jean Raby, who, again, multi-genre, she writes fantasy, and she's also got a lovely series of uh, classic mystery novels. Yeah. Um, uh, she said, just publish your own, get your own imprint, do it on your, on your own, because she had done that with her mystery novels. Yeah. So I created Magpie Press and I came out with my first one last year, Creature Feature. Uh, and uh, we're just releasing the audio book, which I'm very excited about because I got, I don't know if you ever saw the show Castle. Yes. Well, you know, Lieutenant Ryan. Yep. Yeah, well, the Lieutenant Ryan is my narrator. That's Seamus Dever. Okay. And, and his wife, Juliana Dever, who played his girlfriend and wife on Castle, both of them have done the book because I knew my main character, Kathy slash Vivacia, the vampire woman, uh, needed to be voiced by a woman where Seamus could handle everything else, including any other females. Yeah. And he's a brilliant actor. And I had worked with him on a, uh, a reading of a Ray Bradbury uh, short play okay. called The Better Part of Wisdom that I had directed at the Writers Guild. Mm -hmm. And I, so I've known him for over 10 years. And um, approached them and he wound up producing it, directing it, editing it. He just threw himself into it. And it's wow. it's it's just been released. It's it's lovely. And then awesome. my next one coming out May 7th is a more uh, where creature feature a horrid comedy. It's called as a balls out comedy. Oh okay. Uh, about it's a mashup of old monster movies with political satire. If you can imagine such a thing, which really you don't have to because I did. So I wrote the book. <laughs> The next one is called Bully for Love, and it's, I call it a very odd love story. Okay. So it's a realistic uh, novel. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of a, I have a series of books I'm calling my Love, Sex, and Pursuit of Happiness novels. Okay. They're a trilogy not in characters or uh, story, but in theme. So I, okay. go ahead. So I know. More of a, start me. It's hard to stop me. So, <laughs> so, so the trilogy—it's more of a, a series as opposed to a serial. So it's it yes. kind of has the same themes throughout, but it's, each book could be a standalone. They are standalones, uh, definitely, and they all deal with love and sex and the pursuit of happiness. Awesome. The first one, which Crossroad Press published, and later, all my publishers are letting me take my books back, and eventually they'll go under my Magpie Press. But the first one was called By the Sea, yeah. and its emphasis was on happiness. You know, by the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea. Okay, yeah. and then Bully for Love, which is bully in the numeral four, and then love. Uh, it, the emphasis is on love. And the one that's coming at the end of this year or early next year is called The Reluctant Heterosexual. And as you might be able to guess, that has to do with sex <laughs> in our modern era. Awesome. That so must have been fun to write. 
Reluctant Heterosexual was, was a very strange one to write because, again, you talk, people talk about where you get your ideas. And sometimes they come by somebody just tells you a story. And many, many years ago, a guy told me a story about something that happened with a, a, a guy who saw a woman at a distance at a party and thought he had gotten her phone. And she was gorgeous. She was beautiful. And uh -huh. thought he had gotten her phone number. But the person he asked from mistook her for somebody else. So he got another woman's phone number. And he calls her up thinking it's this gorgeous woman and it's not an ugly woman he's calling up but a more you know not yeah. not 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 a typical man's dream a very attractive and very intelligent woman and then it leads to sort of a screwball romantic comedy idea now i first wrote this as a, as a screenplay couldn't crack the ending so i wrote it it into a novel same problem couldn't crack the ending turned it into a play. And I was very happy with aspects of the play because theatrically there were things I was going to do in stagecraft that excited me. Ending was awful. Mm. And then one day I realized the ending's not there because it's not the whole story. So what it's become, it's one section of a much longer novel now. Okay, I see, I you see. see? Yeah. So I call it, I, and taking off from musical compositions, especially classical, I call it a novel in four movements, a prelude and an interlude. So you okay. have, because each section has sort of its different tone. Like in a composition, uh, one movement will be fast paced, the next movement will be slow and more ballad like or something, and then the next movement will be this. So and it's, 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 it's an experiment. You know, but I'm very, uh, very happy with the way it came out. So now the the original Reluctant Heterosexual is just one section of this much longer piece. Okay. Well, that's that's a very unique way to write, I think. Um, so you, when you write, you don't write linearly, do you? Do you, are you are you one of these people who you know plot down to the last detail and and there's nothing wrong with that. I can't yeah. do it myself. Um, but you're very linear in your writing, like the chapter, it has to be chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter well, four. There's... Again, it depends on the story. Oh, now, okay. I have two, what I call um, satiric Hollywood thrillers. Yeah. Again, you can imagine that, but again, you don't have to. Now, one is called Blood is, Blood is Pretty, and the other one is Hollywood is an all-volunteer army. And those were two of the first novels I wrote. And after 20-some-odd years in Hollywood, I had material. Those were plotted out in my head, but not in any great detail. Yeah. And they're linear in their storytelling. And their first person, the, 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 the hero character I call the fixer, spelled with two X's, by the way, to distinguish from all the other fixers out there. And he makes his living uh, off the, the horrible sins of Hollywood and people having problems. So he comes in and for a great deal of money, or sometimes a percentage of their income for the rest of their career, yeah. he will solve their problems. And sometimes he does it in a, let's call it quasi-illegal manner. Um, he's mysterious. You know, he may, it's obvious that he was once in a intelligence division somewhere. Um, he lives very, you know, sky rise and uh, high rise uh, penthouse. Uh, he loves, uh, you know, he loves all that. But the thing is, he is also a combination of, of that uh, Raymond Chandler type, uh, uh, you know, only good guy in the mean streets. Yeah. If he sees something that's wrong and he wants to write it, he'll do it. Okay. So uh, I, I, it's a character I like. I couldn't continue with him because I didn't want, I just, I don't want to get into writing a series of one character. It just doesn't yeah. appeal to me. So yeah. those two, those are linear. I have a, a, a sat, a sat I'm basically a comic and satiric writer, by the way. So, uh, traveling in space is a is a science fiction satire based on the. You know what a contact uh, first contact novel is? Yep. Science fiction. Okay, so aliens meet Earth people for the first time. Well, this one's written from the point of view of the aliens. Okay, that would be interesting too. Yeah, I call it sort of a Gulliver's Travels for the twenty first century. Um, <laughs> that that's got a that's got a linear story, although there's parts to it. 
Um, and, and most of my, my others are, are straight linear, but the one I'm writing right now, it's called the definition of luck. And it's just not linear. It's just the way it writes itself. It jumps around and it seems perfectly natural to me. So I think it's really your book, as you write, it kind of tells you what you're going to do. Yeah. It's the way you have to tell it. Um, you go with your instincts, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes, yes. Um, so do you ever, um, do you ever get that dreaded writer's block? And if you do, how do you deal with it? No, never had it. Never? I never had it. I, I will stop and I know I, the next chapter is not here yet. I've got to do some research or I've got to do some thinking, but I, I know what to do about it if I get it. it yeah. Take a nice long walk is one thing. Because yeah. uh, you uh, get blood pumping into the brain and be improvisational or a hot shower. The problem yes. is it's really hard. It's very hard in a hot shower to take notes. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, and for some reason, you know, with shower taking and, and note taking, they just don't work together. <laughs> now that ink just <laughs> right off the page, man. Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, so, uh, what would you say is your most interesting writing quirk? I don't know if it's a quirk, but I am determined when I write because I consider it an art. Prose yeah. writing is an art. A lot of people don't understand that because everybody knows how to write. You know, not everybody knows how to play the trombone. So they know that someone who plays the trombone is doing something artistic, right? Yeah. But everybody can write. So they think it's mundane, but it's not mundane. Writing prose is like working with clay for a sculptor or chiseling on stone or using paint for a painter or yeah. the notes in music. So, um, and I try desperately, I don't know if it's desperate or not, but that's the word that came out, to make sure I say things in a way that is hopefully fresh, not been said before. I avoid cliches like the plague, which yes. I find a lot of writers don't. A lot of writers go for what I call off-the-shelf dialogue, especially in television, or yeah. off-the-shelf way to describe something, yeah. or put in too many of certain things. That Jean Raby, who I mentioned before in her last newsletter, because uh, she does editing uh, anthologies and things like that besides writing, and she just edited an anthology that I'm in called Turning the Tide. And she said um, she noticed or actually it, it, she juried a, uh, a novel competition and she noticed people constantly write and he nodded and she nodded and then they nodded and they nodded. And she said it, it, it was so many nodded's in the book that all she could think of was a bobblehead. <laughs> so she was determined in her next piece that she wrote, she would not put one nodded. I mean, on, it's, it's appropriate when it's appropriate, but if you fall into that, or there's certain responses and it happens in television a lot. And right now television is, as many people will tell you, is in a golden era. There's a lot of great things being written, but you find there's certain things mm -hmm. uh, that, that people fall into. Like, you know, are you and, are you and Sheila, uh, are you engaged or are you loving each other? Well, it's complicated or something like that. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. It's where, come up with something you know more original yeah um and follow your instincts because all, all art when it's created is improvisational isn't it yes it is well think of it as an improv act you know and go with your instincts i, I was very close to uh, a good friend and colleague of mine was ray bradbury yeah. um and yeah fahrenheit 451 dandelion wine martian chronicles and um he what he always preached because um, he, he didn't think you could teach writing to anyone and he didn't really cotton to, to, to classes in writing. He says, you, you got to follow your instincts. You've got to really trust your instincts here. Yes. So, so my quirk is trying to trust my instincts and trying to come up with ways of saying things and create characters that will talk in a certain way that's not like how anybody else talks. Yeah. Uh, they talk loud and, you know, yeah. uh, I have a character in... Uh, in the the fixer novels and he always talks like this all the time sort of like gilbert godfrey maybe uh, if, I'd yes. ever, if i'd ever gotten to see it in the film i would have suggested gilbert godfrey for the character because people are 
weird and different and strange and they have their quirk so the quirk is try to find the quirks in your characters and exploit <laughs> them yes yes yeah. i think that's a that's a challenge um no i know i do this um when i'm when i first start off writing a new book or i'm, I'm working on a new project i sit down and i do a character interview um you know where and and they're they're in in depth um mm -hmm. I basically turn them into a character bible do you do anything like that do you you know do you try and get into the character's head in that fashion or do you just kind of let them talk to you at their own pace yeah the the latter i think um i visualize them i suppose um and as i'm writing uh, they come to the forefront you know the cliche a lot of writers will say oh, i wind up my characters write my books i don't really write my books now that, that's a load of you know, bull crappy to be honest with you you write your books, it's, it's in there, it's in your consciousness, it's in your subconsciousness. But the feeling is that you get is certainly true that the characters have taken over. That's yes. because once you start, there's a logical progression once you, you do things. Um, someone I worked with many years ago when I was in film, if you know the animation director, Chuck Jones. Heard of him, yeah created the roadrunner and the coyote and yeah. the great directors of daffy and bugs and mm -hmm. and uh, porky pig he always said um if you know your characters the plot will become obvious yes so yes. what you do by getting to know your characters ahead of time which is a great technique is once you know what they are when you th throw a situation at them it will become obvious what the character move has to be because yeah. the character is a certain kind of person. So a character is either going to murder the person or going to uh, hide from the crime or, or whatever you're doing or yeah. fall, in love with, with, fall in love with the bad boy instead of the, the really nice guy, which yeah. happens too often in life. <laughs> um, having, having grown up a nice guy. Um, but uh, uh, so that's, it, that, that's important. And you, you, you wind, you, if you don't wind up with a dialogue with your characters, whether you write it down or not, then you're not getting at the essence of your characters. And you want them to bloody delight you. Yes, you yes. You know improvisation, suddenly your character will come out with a, a, a line of dialogue that gobsmacks you. And you go, wow, that's it. And you, know, you want to attribute it to the character, but pat your own self on the back <laughs> it was in there somewhere you're a clever person you got that out um love yourself but you know you, you love yourself by loving your characters yes um, yeah. and uh and th th that's the great joy of it because i believe wholeheartedly that the joy of art is in the doing yes i, I would that, agree that's all you can be assured of if you write and you get that joy and that pleasure, you've won. If you get it published, great. If you get a huge readership, great. Yep. If you make a lot of money from it, which ain't easy, great. But yep. at least you've had the joy. Yes. And that's the reason to do it. Exactly, I would agree. So do you think um, that the plot is just as important as the character or just is the characterization more important when you're writing i don't i don't think you should assign importance to either the story will be what it is um i tend to always have plots uh modernist uh, literature is often uh, concerned with the psychological reality of a character and plot becomes unimportant uh, whether it's Virginia Woolf or Hemingway, Hemingway had plots though, but or whoever's writing, um, all writing to me has its uh, purpose and its um, uh, importance and its and what it is. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I can read a book that is basically concentrates on character, and the plot could be very simple. Um, you know, uh, she sets the table and she waits for guests while she thinks about her life or something. That can be a very viable reading experience and, and very good. Um, or it can be a, myst a classic mystery. Yeah. Uh, and I love, uh, I, I tend to like mysteries more that were written like up to 1950, 1960 than, than afterwards. Although I, you know, I read in, in, in both. Um, I think 
you use what needs to be done to tell what you're telling. All have value. So I don't, um, I, I, I'm very much get upset when I, I hear genre writers or readers who, and some of them read only mysteries or only science fiction or only fantasy, which, you know, they're allowed, right? But that, I, I just think, God, you re you're eating nothing but McDonald's all day. Yeah. You, you know, but anyway, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I don't want to read literature, you know. Mm. And, well, my goodness gracious me. Well, if you don't want to read it, that's fine. But why are you putting it down? Yeah. It, it's because there, there's a certain... Uh, not lack of self-esteem, but they, they have, they, they're, they're afraid they're going to be accused of being low, low born or low ball or, you know, have bad taste if they read in genre. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, everything is of value yeah. and they have their different things. A, a certain genre works in science fiction or mystery. Character is not as important. You can, you can, you can tell the story with more 2D characters. Yep. Characters that that hopefully are not stereotypes, but can be uh, stereotypical. That's not the word. What do I want? Um, but there there are certain types that work for the story you're telling. Yes. If, if you can put a patina of individuality on it, you're doing better. Yeah. But still, you know the the hard talk and hard drinking pi in yeah. the mean streets. Okay. When you're writing what we call a literary novel or a mainstream novel it's very important to get into the person's head and to understand the psychology and to hit them in the face with a tragedy or make them slip on a banana peel or whatever. So I'm a great lover of John Updike and Philip Roth. John Updike is one of the great prose artists of America, a uh, brilliant writer. Um, and, but I can also, you know, uh, like I say, read uh, uh, Agatha Christie yeah. Or, or go back to Bulldog Drummond novels and The Saint and uh, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. There, there's value in, in all writing as long as there's integrity when it yes. was written. Yes. And that's my favorite word in the dictionary is integrity. That It's like you, you build an airplane, you want it to have integrity or it's going to fall out of the sky. Well, yeah. And, and the engineer will tell you that, right? And of course, there's integrity in your in your business dealings or your political dealings with people. But integrity means it's it's of the right whole cloth. Nothing's false about yeah. it. Yeah. Whatever you're writing, if you're writing about hunting dragons in in medieval or long before medieval England, um, as long as it has an integrity and there's nothing false about it, or you're you're just repeating what you've read. You're, you're, you're being a mockingbird and yeah. trying to write like somebody else, that to me doesn't have integrity. Yeah, so no. I, I like to celebrate all kinds of writers in all kinds of genres. Yeah, I would agree. I, th I think the, the, the broader your, um, your reading scope is, the broader your writing scope is going Absolutely. to be. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about right to market, you know, um, and specific genres and subgenres and in, in, in different styles. Well, you've got to make sure you've got this and this and this. You've got to have these three things. This trope has to have this and this has to. And I, I think um, from a writer's standpoint, um, I it can be incredibly difficult to to put yourself into that position and write into that that um, box, if you will, because when you are when you're trying to do something that is original and creative and give um your own voice onto something and you're you're writing in such a way where you're you're kind of it's a plus b equals c it really does in my opinion it really does limit what you can do you're absolutely right yeah in, in that case you're not writing you're regurgitating yep okay um, and that and that doesn't have integrity. And there's too much of this, you know, writing to market. Uh, if you're gonna write, you've got to love writing. Yeah. And if you and and if you want an audience, yes, you're going to have to get it out there, whether you submit it to Random House or Simon and Schuster or a small independent traditional publisher, or whether you go the route of a, of an indie uh, publisher. And there's many indie publishers out there now that use that that um, digital technology I'm talking about, or if you publish yourself. Yeah. 
which is no longer vanity publishing. Again, it, some of it's vanity publishing, obviously, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you, 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 you have to, you, if you're going to think of it as an industry at all, you have to think of it as a cottage industry. You yes. know, you're, you're in your hut weaving <laughs> and selling your cloth to people. You're yeah. not sitting in a huge factory with 10 dozen other people, uh, working 12 hours a day and losing your eyesight, weaving yeah. for the big masters. Um, if you have that attitude, then you better be with Random House, but you'll probably not be well served by them either. Yeah, um, yeah. it's an art. It's not a. It's not a business to begin uh, with. Yeah, um, I think. I think in in some ways, um, you know, it, depending on your definition, your, your de definition of success for your personal ideals. Um, and I recently had the con this conversation with another author and we had sat down and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, at the beginning of every year, I do a business plan and I do a marketing plan. That way I, I have a roadmap of what I need to do to hit the benchmarks that I want to hit. Now, am I sitting there going, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to yeah. do this on this, you know, no, but it gives me, it gives me guidance. It gives me clarity. It gives me a chance to, um focus on my writing because i'm not having to spend eight hours a day marketing i can sit down right. and go, okay well you know i can i'm going to take half an hour today and i'm going to market the rest of my day is writing yeah. or whatever right um but i think too often um especially the newer authors maybe um they haven't gotten to that point in their careers you know or they're they're not looking at it as anything other than you know a hobby i and I'm, I, I make no, no uh, bones. I, I, I think anyone who's willing to write and try and get published is, is absolutely amazing. And kudos, and my hats go out. I deep respect. But if your vision for success is, you know, is getting, excuse me, getting that book out there and making sales and making a living off of it, um, the last thing I think that you want to be doing is sitting there on your laurels, doing nothing towards promoting it, towards marketing it, because you're not just simply marketing a book. You're marketing a brand. You're marketing a whole experience. Right. You know, you, you it, it's the bane. And I've just recently, in the last two books, um, I'm using a promotion company to help because, the, and it does help. Um, and you, you, you know, you read, but nothing bores me more than reading, reading a book about book marketing. Yeah. Sorry. So you do your best. And <laughs> the only consolation is, again, if you were with Random House or Simon & Schuster or uh, Anthonyum or whoever, and if they didn't think you're going to be a bestseller, they would just do the most moderate marketing for you. And you would still wind up doing all this marketing for yourself. So again, you might as well do it for yourself this way. But if you think you're going to make a living at it, you're going to have to probably produce a lot of books so that you have all those streams of income. And if you can churn them out, that's that's a talent. I'm not going to I'm not going to begrudge that. I tend to just you know write what I want to write, and and because that's what I'm focused on. I realized now that starting Magpie Press. I have to split my day, so I write in the morning, and then the afternoon has anything to do with marketing or anything else I get myself involved in, like I just chaired a, a, a jury for a short story prize. And <laughs> I did last year I was on the jury, and there was like seven submissions. I said, I can handle that. This year there were 22. <laughs> and you go, oh, God almighty. And, 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 and I, I won't go on a jury for novels for fear that there'll be 22 novels, because I'm a slow reader. That's been the bane of my existence, too. I love to read, but I've always been a very slow reader. Um, you know, so somebody was very ironic when they created me. <laughs> um, well, you know, and that's the thing. I, I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. I'm a fast reader, but I think that that comes more from the fact that I've also worked in the industry in a lot of i've worn a lot of different hats yeah um you know i've i've done i've i've been a publisher i've been an editor i'm still editing um 
I've been doing PR, I've been doing marketing, I'm doing all, doing all of that. So I've wore all those hats. So you, you, you know, you learn certain ways to do your job or to do whatever you're going to do and do it well in mm -hmm. a short period of time. Um, so um, now, you know, you've, you've been in the industry for a bit, you, you know, you've released a few books. Now, if someone were to come to you who is completely green, is just getting started with writing um, and is looking at you know, getting into the industry and they were to ask you, what would you say? What, what's your best advice for me? What would you tell them? Well, kind of what I just said, don't think of it as an industry. <laughs> Start with the product, the, the book. Well, maybe product was the wrong word. But just write what you want, but learn. And God knows there's enough out there about um, if, if you want to go traditional, then you're going to have to learn about New York publishing yeah. and traditional publishing. And, and New York is a generic term for mainstream uh, traditional publishing because there's publishers all over the United States. You're going to have to research publishers. You're going to have to research what they like. Um, you're going to have to research agents. Very hard to get an agent. You're going to be sending your... your your stuff over the transom. You're going to have to learn how to write query letters, uh, a proper manuscript uh, format, which is important, not to me anymore because I publish my own stuff. So, yeah. And all those sort of constrictions and rules, which are important, but if you're an artist, are also great on you. Yeah. Because they, they usually do. Um, uh, and then and then decide if you don't want to go traditional, but you want to go indie, in, indie digital, then look into that because there are indie digital publishers, almost all of them were started by writers who learned it first and then had friend writers who didn't want to learn it come to them and say, but how do you do this? Well, let me publish you. And so that's all, I had three different publishers um, uh, on, on uh, quite a few of my books. And one is Crossroad Press. And that was started by David Wilson. And he was a writer that just knew computers and stuff. So he learned how to do it. And he's, uh, it's been, he has a huge amount of titles, but he, he kind of concentrated on trying to get works that went out of print. He came along when a lot of authors were, uh, were being thrown out of their publishers, their yeah. mid-list books. And they're not put, they're, taking them out of print. So the authors would get the rights back and Crossroad would, would put them up and then do audiobooks for them and what have you. Yeah. Um, the other one was started by a friend of mine in the Writer's Guild uh, called Third Street Press. And she did my, my uh, uh, Journey to Wear, which is kind of a, I call it a contemporary scientific romance, taking off the term, the first term for science fiction, which was used for H.G. Wells novels and Jules Verne's novels. And I just, I like those kind of big epic adventures where they go into strange worlds. And yeah. so I tried to make a contemporary version. And, um, but she's kind of quite frankly having problems with her, her financial source. Yeah. So that's why Gene Raby said, just do your, do your own imprint, you know, do it on yeah. your own. And, uh, and it is working out well. Uh, and then the, the, the oddest one was uh, the man who published my novel, Traveling in Space, which has been my most successful. And what he's, he's, he's a writer of, of nonfiction because yeah. what he is is a space flight engineer at JPL okay. in Pasadena. Uh, for years, he was the guy back in, in JPL kind of driving Cassini around Saturn. If you remember that, that was a great probe, went around Saturn for seven years to all yeah. the moons, an incredible amount of science came back and then it was crashed into Saturn. Yeah. And Dave Doobie, who I met through Ken Cragen, who I mentioned before, who was a personal manager, but he was also an astronomy buff. Um, when I wrote Traveling in Space, which is again about a bunch of alien scientists that they don't come to earth purpose with a purpose, they stumble upon earth. They also come from a society that believes they're the only life in the universe, which is not as unreasonable as one might think because there's absolutely no evidence for any other life. Yeah. But they stumble upon earth and, and they're scientists and their main goal in life is to know, to understand. So they have to you know, go down and try to understand these people on this little planet. Yeah. Um, and so I have alien scientists and I have 
earthbound scientists in the book. So I showed it to Dave. Uh, and I said, would you read it and just see if I got scientists right? Just the idea of science. And he read it and he said, yeah, you did. I like it. Plus, you know, let me help you publish this book. And at that time, I didn't want to do it on my own. But he had published, uh, he had published a book um, about basic space flight. And he also uh, had a company called Spacecraft International. He makes this beautiful paper, paper models of real spacecraft. Oh, and wow. they, they sell at science, uh, not science fairs, but at planetariums and observatories and science centers all around the United States. Um, beautifully thing. Um, I said, why don't you publish it? <laughs> create a publishing company. So he did. He created, he, he created a Blue Roof Press and he published one of his books and he published uh, one of mine. And he said, well, th this is great because this is I'm going to retire soon and this is what I'll do afterwards. But the sucker hasn't retired. He's like <laughs> 78. And after Cassini, they got him on the Mars that just recently landed in the little helicopter. Yeah. Flying around Mars that just happened. Did you read about that? Yeah. OK, so uh, he's, he is um, down to, to part time with them. But he communicates with the rover on Mars every morning to make sure everything's okay. So he and the rover, he spends his mornings talking to this rover. And then he's decided that he says, by, by the time I'm 80, I'm going to go get my PhD and I'm going to study whale songs. <laughs> so publishing's no longer his bailiwick. And um, we'll be taking Traveling in Space back and I'll. I'm going to redo it under uh, Magpie Press. Eventually, I'll have all my books under Magpie Press, and just you know, I'm going to re-edit them uh, or copy edit. I'm not going to change too much, but you know, you always have um, right typos. You always have problems. You always have grammar mistakes. That when you look at the printed thing, no matter how many times you do it, two years later, you're just you pick it up for one just to look at it. Oh, geez, you know. Yeah. Yep. Right, happens all the time because yep, it if does. People were, if people were perfect, it would be a boring world. <laughs> it would be. It would really be. But do, you, do you use Grammarly at all? I actually I use ProWritingAid. Okay. Um, I find um, I find ProWritingAid to be um, to be better for what I, I I want. Grammarly is really good for doing emails, doing short little pieces, but I find that ProWritingAid just it just works better well, for me. I, I found Grammarly to be very good for me. So, um, yeah. well, you know, I think it all depends on on, on your use too. Uh, no, yeah. no two people are going to be the same. Um, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm also involved in, in a couple of critique groups and we meet and we we go through our work and we we shred it and we I mean we do developmental level edits on on, on a, everything that we post so it makes a little bit interesting um, some days because you're you know you want to pull your hair out because you're like I thought I nailed that and you didn't nail it. <laughs> but what are you gonna do it's all part you're, of you're assuming you can trust the other people in the group well you know that's the thing is is, is we've uh, the one group that i'm in we've we've been working together for a year now and um we are um we've done an anthology together we're looking at doing another one we've kind of grown together and uh everyone that's in the group we're 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 more like family than we are um you know because we we yeah. just we know each other so well. Like, I mean, I, I talk to them every day, you know, uh, we meet twice a week to do critiques. So, you know, it, it can be interesting. Uh, now I've, I've had some people that have said, you know, hey, I would never do a critique group because I don't try, but you know, there's a, there's ways around that, you know, there's ways of, of uh, ensuring um, that your work is safe. Um, you know, I've dealt with where some are doing NDAs and uh, others are, you know, they're, they sit there and they read and you know they read their work aloud and then they get feedback and and i mean that's whatever works for you is is great um this way it works because we do live critiques so it's um you know it works for us uh it may not work for the next person but it works for right. us so. yeah it's nothing i was ever interested in <laughs> because you i had bad, i had bad experiences when i started out showing my work to people and then taking their advice and losing commission I lost yep. a piece 
for the LA Times that way. I lost a piece for another uh, publication that way because I went and listened to them. So that's why I err on the Ray Bradbury thing of listen to your instincts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus, I'm pretty. Um, I'm pretty confident in what I'm trying to achieve at all times. Yes. Plus, here's the number one thing. I don't expect to be perfect. I don't yeah. expect what I write to be perfect. In fact, you talk about quirks. The most interesting thing about uh, a piece of writing, whether it's a novel or a short story, sometimes is that which is not perfect. Yes. Sometimes yes. that's what can make it unique, different, alive. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 it's that improvisational spirit. Now, I in, what I mean by that, you don't just write down what, what comes to you first. You certainly go over it, you edit it, you live with it, you put it away, you come back to it because you know, you're three weeks older now and you've had more experience and, and you see a better way to say it. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, I'm my own writing group. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, you know, and that's the thing is, is I'm I'm one of these that I can I can pick things apart. I can I can and I when I'm when I'm editing, when I'm critiquing, I don't necessarily go in and, and I don't go through and I'm like, this is wrong. This is wrong. it's like, OK, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? How yeah, come this, you know, so and the, the girls and I, that's kind of what we've done. We we don't we don't um we don't shred in the sense of well this is all wrong you need to change it it's well why did you do it this way or is there a different way you could say that to give it more impact there's questions asking those questions i think is probably the biggest help um but not everybody gets that there there are some really really like a, critique groups yeah, out there so like a good psychiatrist yes well, what, do you, what do you feel about that yes yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I can see the value in that if you're doing that. I was young, I was naive, and I was anxious to please people. You yeah. never be anxious to please people. But um, like I say, when you really know what you want to go at, it's like I don't think Picasso ever had a, a painting group. No, you know, no, I, I can't see him ever having a painting group. Yeah, I mean, and, and yet he had, I mean, Van Gogh had Gauguin, and they argued, and um, but the, the worst thing you ever want to hear is someone saying, well, that's not the way I would have written it. Well, they're totally not understanding. It sounds like your group understands the way each of you would write it. Yes. And if the question is uh, more or less saying without saying, hey, that's not really you. I know you and you somewhere have a better way to say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, but at, at my age now, there's uh, plus I don't like people that much. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be a satirist, you know, <laughs> which is a horrible choice to make. You know what George Kaufman called satire? Yes. That, that which closes on Saturday night. Yes. Exactly. So it's, it's not the biggest commercial advantage in the world. No. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, we, you know, for, for joining me today. Um, Thank you. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. I do hope that you will will come back uh, for another round in the hot seat. <laughs> Any, anytime you want, awesome. especially, especially in the winter when I'm cold. A hot seat is a perfect thing. You know. There we go. Um, so, can you tell us where you we can get your books? Um, well, where certainly. your readers can yes. find you? You you uh, they're all they're all on Amazon. I have a like all authors. I have a page on Amazon. I am exclusive to Amazon on several books. I just don't see any reason to bother with the others, to be honest with you. Um, maybe later in Magpie, but on my Crossroad Press is at Barnes and Noble and Kobo and all that stuff. But if you go on my Amazon page, I have a blog called The, the Emotional Rationalist, uh, yeah. or just Google Stephen Paul Leva, L-E-I-V-A, and all that stuff will come up. A lot of videos will come up uh, of interviews I've done and different things I've done and podcasts, but on Emotional Rationalist, uh, my blog, I have a My Books page, and that's very detailed. And I've got a lot of blurbs and reviews I've gotten in there. It'll explain my books and how different they are. Um, I also have a page, links to a lot of interviews I've done and, and things like that there. You'll be on there eventually. Um, so that's, that's basically it. You'll find some other things 
I once did a restaurant review for our local PBS station, KCET. So if you want to know about uh, uh, gourmet sausages, <laughs> you can find that on there. I went to a restaurant <laughs> and ate a rabbit and rattlesnake sausage. So that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the kind of things they do. And I'm surprised I had the guts to eat it because there was also jalapeno in it. And I, I'm, I'm a real uh, wuss when it comes to food. I don't want anything burning my mouth, but jalapeno, it, it, it was very mild and it was quite delicious. Awesome. So, um, that kind of stuff. Excellent. Well, everyone, thank you so very much for joining us today. And thank you, Stephen, for joining us and answering all our questions. I look forward to having you back again. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, the little bell and the like, and share this uh, the interview to help Stephen get a little bit more exposure for his book. And we will talk to everyone next week. Thank you again for joining us. And I hope you have a great and fantastic week.